Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 168, recorded for the week of June 1st, 2022. The Cloud Pod celebrates GCP Madrid region with Singria. Good evening, Jonathan and Ryan. How are you doing? Good. Good week. Yeah. Hello, hello. Now I'm a man of leisure. I can uh, take my time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're not you're, you're you're not as busy these days. Why aren't you doing the show notes? Why do I have to do them? Still? <laughs> I, I still wouldn't get it done in the time I have available. That's that's the thing. <laughs> I barely I barely get them done in the time I have available. So I I fully understand uh, that sentiment. Well, it's uh, another fantastic busy week here in the cloud once again. Uh, with Broadcom apparently deciding to buy VMware for $61 billion. Uh, Broadcom is apparently interested in buying this, this product. There is one of the third largest technology acquisitions in history, uh, just shy of Dell's $67 billion acquisition of EMC and Microsoft's $69 billion acquisition of Blizzard. Uh, apparently, Broadcom isn't afraid of big acquisitions, having purchased Symantec's Enterprise Unit previously and CA uh, several years ago. Uh, while Broadcom is mostly known for its chips, by adding VMware will become the leading infrastructure technology company per their press release, not not per the podcast. Uh, and there's a quote here from Broadcom <laughs> president and CEO: "Building upon our proven track record of successful M&A, this transaction combines our leading semiconductor and infrastructure software businesses with an iconic pioneer and innovator in enterprise software, as we reimagine what we can deliver to customers as a leading infrastructure technology company." Uh, and apparently, they. Uh, some of the analysts said this is because uh, CEO Huck Tan is worried about the chip boom not lasting forever, although he's probably got several years of chip boom <laughs> at this point uh, and wants to make sure that he can still achieve the high growth rates over time that he feels are important to Broadcom's future success. Yeah, this is an interesting sort of reverse on you know the, the large cloud providers getting into the silicon business, um, which makes sense to me that they want to control their supply chain and, and, and optimize I mean, if it is just straight the inverse, is Broadcom going to start becoming like a, you know, a cloud provider? That's interesting. Wouldn't suspect that. I mean, I just don't know what they're going to do with it. Yeah, I kind of wonder what their real motivation is, right? Well, I guess the, the VMware need Broadcom for their, for their silicon, the Broadcom need VMware for some technology. It's, it's hard to see where the real overlap is between them. I, I do know that Broadcom is, Broadcom is trying to get into... Um, software-defined networking, and they lost the deal to buy Cumulus to NVIDIA. Um, and so they kind of, I think they're hurting a little bit there. So maybe maybe there's some um, software-defined networking tech that they want from VMware. Or they just really want to diversify their portfolio. I think, it's, I think it really comes down to those two answers, right? One is we make chips and we can virtualize chips with VMware for the data center solutions that we make. And then beyond that, you know, it's it's a really robust uh, enterprise. You know, has pretty good ev- annual revenue still. You know, there's allegedly about 600 core customers who are still pretty heavily embedded in VMware and expect to be for a, a long time. And with some of their investments in Tanzu and some of the other things, you know, they could potentially still be compelling for enterprises in the future. So I I see some of the value here. I mean, they also own Rally Software, which is uh, a Jira competitor. They own Clarity. They own the Semantic Enterprise assets we talked about, and they own Arcot. Um, All those things can be rebranded under the VMware brand pretty easily, and then all of a sudden, you've now made the VMware brand more, you know, morally fully functioned. You get into the DevOps space with the Rally stuff. You can get into a bunch of other things. 
and really make an interesting play uh, for you know the DevOps operational side of cloud combined with Tanzu and their multi-cloud connectivity and cloud uh, management software, there it could be interesting for Broadcom. It's definitely a way to diversify the portfolio more so than anything else. Interesting. They're keeping the VMware name, though. They're rebranding themselves instead of uh, coming up with a new name or moving everything under the Broadcom umbrella. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I assume they keep the VMware brand. It's more, it's more valuable to me than the Broadcom brand completely. All right, well, let's talk about AWS. Uh, Amazon EC2, M6ID, and C6ID are now available, which is uh, giving you access to the 7.6 terabyte local NVMe storage, uh, allowing you to still use the powerful Xeon scalable Ice Lake processors with 3.5 gigahertz, gigahertz all-core turbo frequencies uh, and that new NVMe storage. Uh, I tried to look up the price earlier, but EC2instances.info uh, was not updated with the new API. And so thank you very much, Vantage. We really appreciate that. <laughs> and if I had to do math, I wasn't going to do it. That's how I that's how I felt about it at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't be bothered. I got it. Yeah, I mean, I guess you need all that disk space because you're logging every transaction that's being processed through the processor, right? So, <laughs> Yes, that's so right. High speed. <laughs> you're going to audit that level. You need to know every every detail that you can possibly do. So. And now Amazon EBS now supports elastic volumes and fast snapshot restores for IO2 Block Express. You can use the elastic volumes to dynamically increase the capacity and tune the performance of your IO2 Block Express volumes with no downtime or performance impact in the same manner as the other EBS volumes. Additionally, you can now create a fully initialized IO2 Block Express volume from a fast snapshot restore enabled snapshot. Do you guys use this uh, Block Express volume type at all? No. It's one of those things I barely need to use provision IOPS the rest of the time. So to have uh, four times the, the IOPS of, of, of uh, provisioned IOPS is outside my use case. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I usually am doing whatever I can to avoid this. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I assume this is a HANA use case or some other some other really legacy uh, you know, technology that needs just massive amounts of IO. Because even in PyOps, most of the time when you, you actually look at your PyOps usage, you don't really need PyOps either. Um, and you could actually get around it by provisioning more storage and getting more PyOps uh, natively with the standard storage class. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I haven't used it this yet either, and I sort of like to, just I'm curious about it, but I, I don't want to pay for it. Right. Well, if you can afford SQL Server or HANA, then then you can afford the uh, expensive disks. <laughs> and I'm sure there's you know there's a lot of you know over provisioning and you know uh, anti cloud pattern you know behaviors going on here that require this kind of thing and. I do find the the fast snapshot restore is a funny feature, just because it if you know it feels like one of those born in an emergency type things, like oh no, yeah. Do you have backups? Yes. How long does it take to restore them? Sixteen yeah. hours. Yeah. <laughs> Crap. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's not even that it restores them; is that they don't perf- they don't perform at the same level when they get restored, right? That's the whole point of the fast fast initialization is that they perform better at at creation. Yeah, yeah, because the snapshots are otherwise kind of lazy loaded into the volume as as you access those blocks, and so I mean, if if an application is particularly latency sensitive and you're trying to trying to start it going, then yeah, you definitely need to have that whole volume available up front. That was it for AWS. I felt was worthy of chatting about. So <laughs> a light week for AWS. Yeah, uh, for sure. The G, uh, GCP had a lot of puff pieces this week. Uh, we'll talk about one of them here, which I thought was just sort of humorous. 
which was uh, around why IT leaders choose Google Cloud certification for their teams. And uh, Google apparently alleges that the benefits of getting certified are speeding up the technology implementation of your software, improving the client satisfaction and success. I don't know what client they're talking about. Motivate your team and retain your talent. And finish your products ahead of schedule. I can tell you every cloud project I've ever done is not started, you know, completed ahead of schedule uh, because by getting certified. <laughs> that that wasn't the solution to getting uh, ahead of schedule. Uh, trust me. <laughs> no, no. I've adopted cloud technologies in order to get ahead of schedule, but usually that's an emergency and I'm already behind schedule anyway. But yeah, the training, nah, or the certification, nah, I don't think so. Yeah, nice, nice try, Google. Nice try. Mm-hmm. It's like, please get trained in our, in our stuff so that you don't ask our support people crazy questions or <laughs> please please learn our product so that you don't go on Twitter and, and tweet about how bad something is just because you don't know how to use it. But it's funny because, it, you know, think about these things that they're advertising. Like, who are they advertising to? It's it's it, This is clearly executive leadership. You know, it's not targeted towards people on the ground that are going to actually take, you know, the training or get certified or do anything. This is, eh. Uh, not, not like, a fan of this type of release at all. It's, it's like an SEO thing, an SEO piece. Ignore the article completely. The, the important bit is why IT leaders choose Google Cloud. Never mind certification right. with their teams. It's it's all about which cloud people choose. Yeah. Anyway, I'd love to start projects on schedule, let alone finish them on schedule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know when that happens for the first time. <laughs> I can't do it either. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's a struggle. The struggle is real. That's all I know. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Google Cloud Spanner announced at uh, the Data Summit earlier that they had announced uh, Google Spanner change streams, and Google's now back to tell us they're now generally available. The change streams Spanner users are now able to track the and stream out changes of inserts, updates, and deletes from their Cloud Spanner database in near real time to things like BigQuery. Change streams can provide a wide range of options to integrate change data with Google Cloud services, including... Uh, many use cases like analytics, event triggering, and compliance. Cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a cool feature if you need it, especially the event triggering. Uh, compliance is a neat thing. I hadn't really thought about that use case, but I can see how that would be useful yeah, there if you yeah. did it the right way. But, you can yeah. have it send an email to somebody every time you access a particular person's record or particular piece of data or update a particular piece yeah. of data or something. So, yeah. Yeah, if you need it, it's good to have. Since compliance teams are driven by email, it has to be by email, right? Oh, fair <laughs> point. It does have yeah, to be email. Yeah. <laughs> Homing pigeon. <laughs> you can now accelerate your high-performance computing journey with the new Google Cloud HVC Toolkit. This is the toolkit to help you understand all the amazing jargon like Slurm, Deos, SMT, Luster, SPAC, and Omnia. Uh, check out the toolkit if HVC is a thing you need to do. And the rest of the listeners uh, can go on to our next story, which I will do as well, which is that the Dora report is launching for 2022 uh, because uh, everything about DevOps is great. And so they do try to survey as many people as they can, including you who listen to the show. Even if you don't think you have anything to add, you do have something to add to the Dora report. Uh, and so do go out and fill that survey out. Uh, this year, they will be focusing on a topic that has been top of mind for many of us, and that is security. Uh, they'll be asking if you follow practices like testing for security, integrating security review into every phase of your delivery pipeline, uh, security review processes in general, building pre-approved code and reuse, and inviting InfoSec early and often. Go through the survey and answer the questions now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have a link in the show notes to go fill out the survey. Uh, I am eager to find out uh, some of the answers to these questions because 
you know, I've used the Dora report to great effect in many, many organizations in the past talking about why we're doing this investment in DevOps, why we're, why we're trying to get cloud native and, you know, high performing teams that are highly successful can do this stuff multiple times a day with, with tremendous success. And so, uh, it's definitely going to be good to be able to continue to drive that outcome for, you know, for your business. And so we're looking forward to seeing uh, what that looks like. Yeah, no, it's super helpful just to see engage where you are with the rest of the industry, and then, um, you know, get ideas like you, you know, for for some of these things like it can be inspirational. I think especially in the last few years, um, as this has sort of picked up sort of uh, steam, or at least got a wider sort of breadth it seems a bit more realistic, which I think is cool. Like, you know, in the early days, the DevOps survey, everything was rosy, you know, of course we do all the new modern stuff every time, you know, uh, but you know, more and more, I think as people take this, it's a, it's a more realistic view on the industry, how fast you're delivering software, what kind of features do you have? And so this is great. You can now eliminate hotspots in cloud big table. Google recently improved the observability of Bigtable by allowing customers to monitor and observe hot tablets. With this real-time hot tablets data through the Cloud Bigtable Admin API and Google G Cloud command line tool. Uh, the blog post goes on to highlight how the hot tablet observability can be used in real-world use cases to help customers understand better design choices based on their access patterns and provide insights into performance-related problems. And having used similar tools in SQL Server and others, uh, these are super fun and really good way to burn a good afternoon of free time to go learn how your data that you think is sharded really well is really not. <laughs> and so these are these are super fun yeah. to go enjoy uh, and learn all about hot tablets and hot spots in your heat maps. What's the adage? Like no no good plan survives first contact with the enemy. I feel like that's <laughs> you know no no data structure plan survives first release or general availability something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's always used slightly different than what was expected. It's hard to get right. Yeah, especially with a with a tool like Spanner, which is you know when it appears on the market, it's relatively unknown. You know, you don't understand the performance gotchas. Um, I guess there's general database best practices and things, but you know we we don't know what what Spanner's like under the hood. So it's, it's it takes time to to learn how to use these tools. Documentation yeah. is one thing, but experience comes much later. And workloads change over time, you know, like you start adding features, it changes the data lookups, you know, you just increase your usage just by scaling, adoption. Yeah. So it's, yeah. These tools are fun. And then uh, networking, of course, is the foundation of your cloud deployment and business process. Proactively maintaining your network health is mission critical to your cloud journey. The cloud is powerful and dynamic, but can sometimes feel complex as you often encounter network issues from suboptimal or error-prone configurations. And so Google has built the Network Intelligence Center module uh, Network Analyzer, which will help you prevent manual time-intensive efforts. And with the Network Analyzer, customers can transform reactive workflows into proactive processes and reduce network and service downtime. The Network Analyzer offers an out-of-the-box suite of always-on analyzers that continuously monitor GCE and GKA networking configurations and tell you lovely things like why you have connectivity issues to Google services like Cloud SQL, or how you misconfigured your load balancer health check, or how your invalid next hop of a route is impacting your deliverable, uh, dynamic routes shadowed by subnet or static routes, uh, and or GKA networking misconfigurations like connectivity between the node, or you know the node can't connect to the control plane. Yeah, these tools are super useful. I like that this is always on, you know, which is very different from the Amazon offering. It's very similar. The fact that it's, you can use it sort of for that instant developer feedback of like you removed a routing rule, 
and nothing can talk to each other, anything, you know, anymore. Like that's important. Those types of things. Um, sometimes they go unnoticed until, you know, the customer reports them later. So that's never what you want. So I like these things being able to, to, you know, troubleshoot and provide information in a very complex ecosystem. I do always find that it's just not quite what I want. And it might just be that it's because I do have a foundational layer of networking and understanding of like how things are, you know, so like I can see this being used to try to troubleshoot maybe a connectivity to another cloud or, you know, into a data center and then suffering there. But, you know, in general, awesome. Is, is this free? It is, is free, it, yes. Oh, always on as in always on and always free to use. Uh, that is nice. I just imagine all those developers who you tried to explain to them network routing and how how difficult that is for you on a daily basis. And now think, hey, I have this tool that'll tell them why thing A will talk to thing B, which is really all they want to know at the end of the day. They don't care about mm -hmm. the routing or any of that other stuff. So at least now when they come to you and be like, hey, the Google thing told me the routes are bad because they're shadowed by the subnet. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but fix it. And then at least you don't have to now yeah. ask a bunch of dumb questions. So I mean, like, there's pluses and minuses to this world. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, in, so, a, yes. in a way, the network is, I mean, it's important. And yes, it causes lots of problems, especially when you're working with hybrid networks. But on, on the other hand, it's the last thing I really want to have to think about when I want to use a cloud service. Like I want to deploy managed services, ensure I get an endpoint. I don't really care where the network is or what the IP address is, as long as it, the connectivity is there. I think the more, the more we don't even need to care about these things, the better. Yeah. Well, I think more and more you get into IPv6, the more and more that reality comes to be. Yeah. Yeah, no more yeah. running out of IPs in the subnet. Well, and 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 it's so vast that I don't think I think it exceeds sort of the ability for humans to simply comprehend, right? Like without tools and technology as assists, like you can sit down and do it, but no one's gonna. Um, and so, like I think that's actually a, an advantage, right? It'll force us to mm -hmm. stop caring about what number this is. It'll force us to stop identifying subnets and their routing or firewall rules based on those subnets, you know, by that number, because that's still very common practice. Take the third octet. I know that's a developer subnet, you know, like that kind of thing. You get into IPv6, like may maybe, you know, there's patterns that will develop that do the same thing because, you know, that's what people do. But I'm hoping that it becomes a little bit more abstracted. I know that I need the forcing function. Confidential computing is now coming to the N2D and C2D virtual machine family on Google. At Google Cloud, they are constantly striving to deliver the performance and features you need. So in November, they announced the N2D, and in February, they announced the C2D machines, all based on the AMD Epic third-generation chips. Uh, now you can run your confidential computing workloads on these new instance types. By default, Google Cloud keeps all data encrypted in transit between cu uh, customers and their data centers and at rest. The future of computing will increasingly shift to private encrypted services where users can be confident that their data is not being exposed to cloud providers or their own insiders. And confidential computing makes that possible by keeping data encrypted in memory and elsewhere outside the CPU while it's being processed, all without needing any code changes to your application. I don't really have much you know, of substance to, to say on this one other than this is probably out of all the the cloud providers, this service is the most aptly named, you know, confidential computing. But for some reason, despite it being, you know, you know, versus Enclave or I forget the other one, um, is uh, for some reason I want more out of it. I don't know. I want confidential computing to be like some sort of like crazy next gen Tor network or something. I don't know. Like you know, it's <laughs> it's this is more encryption and isolation. Encryption in memory doesn't excite you. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, the, I think the important thing about about the computational computing with the with the Epic chips, though, is is because of the way AMD made improvements to virtualization, and that you can't get the key out. I mean, there's no way that another client can get the key. You know, tra you know trademark. Mm -hmm. You know, fingers crossed. Let's hope. Let's hope that there's, there's no vulnerabilities there or anything. But the idea is that when you spin up a new VM on the hypervisor, that the CPU generates the key, and that's the key that's used, and the key doesn't come out. It's not, not mm -hmm. removable. It's only used for memory access for that one particular VM. So technically, uh, even if you had access to the to the hardware, to the data center, you couldn't copy out the contents of that RAM unencrypted, which opens up a whole bunch of opportunities for um, sensitive data, especially military applications, I would think. That's where the money is, right? <laughs> I'm sure. I, I think it'll be one of those things that you start seeing get added to to CSA and things that start getting required by customers saying, are you using confidential computing for your, your assets, especially if you want to be in multi-tenant type environments versus using dedicated tenancy. Um, I think there's going to be opportunities where this is going to become something more common. I don't think we're there yet. We're probably multiple years away from that being a reality, but yeah. we will see. I mean, hopefully things like this and patterns like this do away with like gov clouds and gov isolation there. Right. And you know, it only benefits the cloud providers really. Um, and their customers, because then they'll have access to more services. Maybe they'll have, you know, the choice, maybe not, um, of using those services, certifications. I, th I think this commercial computing mitigates one of the most difficult um, vulnerabilities, which is, um, you know, the, the Rohammer attack on RAM from a, from another VM on the same host. Yep. So great, you can read the contents out, you can reset the contents, you can damage it, but you can't get out the, the only bit to It's just data. junk, yeah. Yeah. Well, in uh, 2020, during the height of pandemic, and all of us have forgotten, Google announced the new region coming to Spain. And now two years later, they are excited to tell you that the Madrid region is officially open. Uh, designed to meet the needs of Spanish businesses, the new Madrid region, Europe Southwest 1, provides low latency, high availability cloud services with high international security and data protection standards, all on the cleanest cloud in the industry. Mid region joins their network of 33 regions. Uh, which I really like Barcelona. I've not been to Madrid, but uh, I, I don't mind going uh, for the podcast mm -hmm. to go check that out and let you guys know what I find out. Yeah. No, I, I think we need to field trip it. I think that's the only way. I, I've been to Madrid. It's a lovely town. I would love to go again. Yeah. See, so what they didn't mention in the press release, though, is that all the servers shut down between 11 and 2 for their siesta. <laughs> <laughs> that's been the show title. The Cloud Pod on Madrid Siesta. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the little jab in there of the, the cleanest cloud in the industry. I, I, I think that that's a good thing that we're starting to see that. And I think Google should tout it. I think they've, they've really invested there, which is cool. I mean, is it true? Like, is that, is that their own opinion or is that an actual true statement, you know, by a third party? Like, I, Hey man, they have a dashboard that says it's very clean. Dashboard isn't going to lie. I know. I know. <laughs> What's it mean by clean exactly? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Let me introduce you to a little company called Volkswagen. <laughs> uh, Learn how to make their computer yeah. tell you anything it wanted to. It also tested fine, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, tested out just fine. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, 
Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. All right, and then the last announcement for GCP this week, introducing the granular instance sizing for Cloud Spanner. Now run your production workloads for as low as $40 a month. Uh, Cloud Spanner uh, general availability for granular instance sizes will bring your cost of Spanner instance to as low as $40 a month on a committed commitment of three years or $65 a month on demand. Uh, basically, uh, granular instances allows you to use processing units to allocate uh, compute capacity Cloud Spanner. So a node equals basically a thousand provision, uh, processing units, and now you can increment them in uh, quantities of a hundred. So you can have a hundred processing units versus the thousand, which will get you a much lower cost. Uh, and if you're using this in a regional availability capability, you still get that 99.99% availability, or in a multi-region, you're getting 99.999%. Now, of course, that's $40 a month per, per node. <laughs> so to keep that in mind, uh, on those 100 processing units, or every node that you want to have 100 processing units will cost you at least $40, but still, uh, a thousand was a bit expensive and and was a blocker for companies trying to just experiment with Spanner because it had a big cut price tag to it, even though it has amazing benefits uh, that you can take advantage of in the Google Cloud. Uh, its cost was prohibitive, so nice to see this finally available to you. Yeah, super useful for people, startups or uh, early early projects work, where you don't want to spend four hundred five hundred dollars a month on something just to test it out. Yeah. Or you know, or even as you wait for adoption, right? Because you know things take time and. It, I know of, you know, anecdotally, you know, friends who have passed on using Spanner for this exactly this purpose, just because it's like, well, yes, eventually you can, you know, max, you'll get all the benefits of that giant scale and the global distribution and all that. But right, you know, as the start of the project, it, it tanks it. So. Well, moving to Azure, uh, Azure got a little meta this week. Uh, as Meta selected them as their strategic cloud provider to advanced AI innovation and deepen PyTorch collaboration, uh, Microsoft, of course, is committed to the advancement of AI to enable every person and organization to achieve more. And they want Meta to achieve even more than they've already achieved of world domination and ruining our society. <laughs> Over the last few months, uh, they have talked about advancements in their Azure infrastructure, Azure Cognitive Services, and Azure Machine Learning to make Azure better at supporting the AI needs of all its customers. And with their collaboration with Meta, uh, they have selected them as their preferred strategic cloud provider to help accelerate AI research and development. As part of their relationship, Meta will expand its Azure supercomputing power to accelerate AI research and development for the Meta AI group. And Meta will utilize a dedicated Azure cluster of 5,400 GPUs using the latest virtual machine series, the NDM A100 V4 series, for the sum of the large-scale AI research they're doing. In addition to the cloud relationship with Meta and Microsoft will collaborate to scale PyTorch adoption on Azure, Accelerate developers' journey from experimentation to production, all leveraging PyTorch. How weird! Because Meta aren't big cloud users; they have their own data centers at their scale. They doesn't make any sense. They run their own cloud, right? All I've read on this is that they they don't want to support their own data science teams, which you know <laughs> I, I feel I Who feel does? that very strongly. <laughs> you know, like it's a it's a whole lot of capacity that you need in these spiky little you know increments, and so uh, you know yeah. I kind of wonder if they, if uh, I assumed it was because they couldn't. We got to say the same thing, right? As you outbid them for the uh, for the NVIDIA GPUs and Metro left with nothing, so they they had no choice but to partner with somebody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I'm just saying that even no matter how big you are, you can't uh, you can't outbuy the Azure, AWS, and GCP spend on those GPUs. So, yeah. so that's why Meta had to uh, had to go this way instead. Yep, mm. that's pretty funny. All this lightning round material, we're wasting it on the show. I know. That's <laughs> <Duh>. right. <laughs> uh, well, uh, apparently, Azure also says that 5G is not an upgrade; it's a new paradigm. Uh, no, I personally am over this language. I'm over 5G taking over the world, uh, and I do think we should talk about that part of this. So the rest of this article is kind of boring and bullshit, but uh, 5G taking over the world. So uh, Azure in particular says that 5G unlocks three key use cases. Which one is MMTC, or Massive Machine Type Communication, which is really IoT for smart cities and connected vehicles. The next is uh, URLLC, or Ultra Reliable Low Latency Communication, to help ensure safety and minimize risk and examples image-assisted quality assurance, or smart highways. And the last one is uh, EMBB, or Enhanced Mobile Broadband, which delivers a faster and better user experience via high data rates to optimize video streaming, VR, AR performance. Now, those are the three things they say. The first one, I don't think it needed 5G. Nope. The second one, uh, no, there's going to be no smart highways probably for decades, because have you ever seen the government build a highway? It takes forever. <laughs> And then enhanced mobile broadband, like, yes, I sometimes notice my phone goes into 5G ultra-wide mode, and do I notice that it's you know noticeably faster and better? Uh, no, I do not, yeah. and I do not care. So ultimately, I'm not sure this whole 5G thing is turning out as well as people think it is and this huge paradigm shift. And so since Azure said it, even though it's not just their fault, mm-hmm. we're going to talk about it. What do you guys think? I, I well, think I think the, the 5G adoption isn't anywhere where it needs to be to deliver the, deliver these features. I mean, we're using 5G bands, we have 5G technology, but what has not been deployed in very many cities is, is, is the infrastructure. I mean, 5G is intended to be much higher, much lower latency and much higher throughput because there are orders of magnitude more um, receivers throughout cities. I mean, literally, we're talking about, you know, in, in a San Francisco or New York, one every one every eighth of a mile or something, or, or even more than that. I think it's less. Yeah. Yeah, and so With and so buildings to, interference. Yeah. Yeah, to get to get those features, feet. you need you need you need these towers or or trans, transceivers all over the place, and we just don't have that. They just the technology came at the wrong time. COVID came. People aren't going outside anymore. There's pushback against the technology in general because people think it's going to rot the brains or give them tumors or something. Um, I mean, low power is enabled because you don't need to broadcast to a tower that's five miles away anymore. It's 30 meters away. <laughs> you know, high, high throughput is enabled because now you're not sharing the same cell with 200 other people. You're only sharing it with 50 people. So th- these are all nice to haves, and maybe maybe it exists in in uh, some places, but yeah, it's not it's not a reality yet. I always every I mean. Two things, like the minute anyone uses the word paradigm in seriousness <laughs> in a sentence, I, you, you know, I just envision, I envision basically that the, the stereotype, you know, visionary in the mo- in the Hollywood movies of like, in the new world, everything will be amazing. We'll be able to unlock our phones by blinking twice. We'll be able to, do, you know, like all the things. And so I feel like this is that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I wonder what the motivation behind it is, is like, these this is, these aren't new ideas. It's not really communicate like I you know it's I know that if you know there's more ubiquitous network and it's everywhere and, and more reliable, then we can make more things talk to each other. Great. Um, so what what's you know what are they trying to do? Are they trying to sell us on it? Are they trying to change like the way we develop because we're just going to waste our time developing stuff that requires some of these things, and then the infrastructure is not going to be there to support it. So a little strange. 
So what exactly? I mean, I'm Microsoft's trying to sell you Azure Arc and all kinds of other technology that will help, you know, help you leverage 5G more effectively, which is, for Microsoft's perspective, it's how they sell more, more Azure services. So I, I get their side of it. But you know, I think, again, like we're, we're definitely in the trough of disillusionment on 5G, I think. There's a lot of hype. There was, you know, it causes coronavirus, which was bull BS. And, you know, then we were supposed to get chips that were supposed to make our 5G connectivity better. That didn't happen either. I mean, like, so it, 5G sort of had this, it's been tarnished by society for dumb things. And then the technology seems like it's not delivering in the way, you know, this this magical paradigm, yeah. as you uh, pointed out, is just kind of BS. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, maybe this is just that part of the evolution where we're in this, this rut where, you know, people are still trying to figure out how to use it effectively and, something magical will come in the future. Maybe it'll power the metaverse at some point. Maybe it'll do VR. Maybe it'll do AR. I don't know. But uh, I definitely don't feel like it's... It hasn't changed my day-to-day life in any way other than more conspiracy theories. I think it just goes back to, you You know, like, you don't need that for VR and AR performance, right? You don't really need that for, you know, massive machine-to-machine communication, right? Like, that's it's actually causing a huge disruption as, as 3G is getting retired because of all these IoT things that no longer are supported. And so it's, you know, like, I don't really know if it's required, but, you know, that's definitely how they're selling it. So it's weird. My phone doesn't work better. My, my new fancy 5G phone just doesn't work better. It's supposed to, but it doesn't. Hmm? Battery lasts less. Those new cell phone modems kill your battery more. Yeah, I mean... Fortunately, I replaced my phone every six years, so you couldn't actually decrease the performance of the battery any further. <laughs> yeah, that wind-up phone you used to have was awesome. <laughs> I, I missed the flip one he had. The flip mm-hmm. one was good, too. Mm-hmm. I'm just glad you got rid totally of the cups, and, I, cups I, and string. I had that hip chat longer than it was cool. That's for sure. <laughs> nice. And then our last story for uh, Azure is the Switzerland North Availability Zones are now live. Uh, if you were in Switzerland before, you only had the luxury of one AZ, which is sad for DR for high availability needs. But now you have three availability zones in Switzerland available to you on Azure. So you're welcome. Yeah. Two extra places to hide your money. <laughs> <laughs> hide your Bitcoin in Switzerland? Is that, yeah. is that yeah. a thing? Can I do that? Yeah, sure. Okay. How do you choose which region if you're trying to stay neutral? Oh, it's not the lightning round yet. It's the no, next no, is no. the lightning <laughs> round. Got it. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to the lightning round. Oh, that nice segue. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, Peter's not here once again this week, uh, so we will we will do this roundtable style again. I uh, put myself first for some reason, but here we are. <laughs> Amazon LightSail containers now support deploying images from Amazon ECR private repositories. What, Amazon? You couldn't just slap LightSail container registry on top of that and like you did everything else and make it look like it's part of a unified strategy? No, no. Yes, make it work with ECR private repositories. Thanks for that. Appreciate it. I just read this as Amazon figures out how to pass a a username and password to the Docker API. (laughs) (laughs) AWS Launch Wizard now supports SQL Server deployments using Amazon FSx for NetApp ONTAP. For all your SQL Server DBAs who love those PyOps, you can now burn money even faster with NetApp ONTAP with your SQL Server Launch Wizard. Thank you for that. Well, that could be the most expensive single click you, you ever make. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a wizard be. did it. <laughs> and it's and it's got you know default wizard security group as your security group too. <laughs> of course it does. 
Yeah. As long as it, <laughs> as long as it names the SQL servers Launch Wizard 1, Launch Wizard 2, we'll, we'll be awesome. <laughs> we'll be set. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> what if it was cool and it was like, you know, Gandalf? <laughs> they actually named it after Wizards. Now, yeah. then I'd be excited. No. Amazon Elasticash for Memcached now supports encryption of data in transit. Wait, what? Strike this, <laughs> strike this up with the uh, thought this already existed category. I thought uh, we would have fixed this. I, mean, I, I probably knew it didn't exist at launch time, but Memcached and Elasticash have been out for mm, 10 years now. So thanks. Thanks yeah. for this one. Appreciate it. Yeah. I guess better late than never. Jeebus. Mm-hmm. It's like, when I must have found this under, under some rug someplace. <laughs> Encrypt everything. Elasticash. AWS IAM now supports WebAuthN and Safari Browser for multi-factor authentication with security keys. So you can now use your iPhone to log into the console. That is a fantastic mobile experience just waiting to happen. Woo! Maybe this is the future of the mobile app going away and so they can actually make a good mobile experience natively instead. <laughs> I was just trying to find yeah. the IT guy who's using AWS with Safari. I want to know who that schmuck is. <laughs> why you have firefox and you have chrome like why would you choose safari because mm. it's default on my on all my apple products and i refuse to change anything why do apple choose safari is, is i don't thing? know why? i mean anymore i have no idea i know why they did back forever ago now yeah. i guess they just because they want to have a native browser experience for the mac so they but, you know, the reality is all the other browsers are just using their technology anyways because they built the Gecko stuff, which now powers Chrome and mm-hmm. Edge and all the other browsers. So, I mean, you really have to thank Apple for this web, fantastic web experience you're experiencing at this moment. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's way better than Internet Explorer, <laughs> especially back then. I, I still miss Netscape sometimes. Opera. Then I, then I wake up and I, from that I'm like, oh, yeah, Opera. Come on. The only people that I've ever seen use opera in seriousness were doing it to, for the story of it. Like, you know, like trying to be cool. I used it on a, on a mobile device years ago because they were the first browser that had, they had a native um, compression service. So you could use one of their proxies and then uh, that would reduce your data use on, and uh, they'd scale down images in the cloud and then just ship you the small copy instead of the big copy. So that's kind of cool. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, it's probably, all right, fine. But you know that yeah. was that was 15 years ago, so a long way. <laughs> yeah, I was on his you know Nokia flip phone that he couldn't you know had paid by the kilobyte, so it's all good. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the other bra- browser I hear sometimes is Brave. I don't know who uses that one either. Yeah. But, uh, apparently, people do. So, all right. Well, things are coming up here in the cloud once again. Uh, sustainability Summit for Google Cloud on June 28th. Uh, is right around the corner, so do sign up for that before it's too late. Uh, the DevOps Enterprise Summit is over, but uh, U.S. is coming very quickly as well, so keep that in mind. RSA Conference is next week when the show drops. It'll be the middle of RSA. We'll see what magic comes out of that. And then Amazon Remars is coming June 21st to 24th for all your uh, Terminator needs. And AWS Reinforce is June 28th to 29th, now moved to Boston. Can't wait to hear what... Uh, comes out of Reinforce this year. We will not do prediction shows again because last time they announced nothing and we're going to go with nothing once again. <laughs> and we'll just talk about it here on the show after the fact. So those are coming up. We have other things in the show notes coming up as well. Check those out uh, in your free time. Thanks a lot. Have another great week here in the cloud. See you later. Bye, everybody. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. 
Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.